Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hey, welcome back to ADHD is over. Here on Wisdom, an episode around the myth of the chemical imbalance theory of mental illness. Now, this is an interesting topic because it ruffles a lot of feathers. There's many people, lots of people, especially people that are dealing with uh, mental illness, that absolutely buy into the chemical imbalance theory. They are told that they have a chemical imbalance in the brain and medications, antidepressants or ADHD medications and so forth, are the solution, are the key to balancing this so-called chemical imbalance. I have done seven years of research into ADHD and have touched upon other mental illnesses and myself come to the conclusion early on that the chemical imbalance theory is very vague and it's just a theory. And so I'm going to today read an article in Counterpunch uh, that is written by a former podcast guest of ours on ADHD is over, Bruce Levine. He's a practicing clinical psychologist and he writes and speaks about how society, culture, politics and psychology intersect. His most recent book is A Profession Without Reason, The Crisis of Contemporary Psychiatry. So this is a man who's been practicing uh, uh, psychology and who's been writing for years on the topic. And he published a recent article, April 29th, in Counterpunch, titled, Do You Still Believe in the Chemical Imbalance Theory of Mental Illness? So I'm just going to read the article so we can reflect on this. It continues to come as a great surprise for many people to learn that psychiatry's leading authorities, including the former longtime director of the National Institute of Mental Health, have discarded the chemical imbalance theory of mental illness, an idea which has had a profound impact on millions of emotionally suffering people and on our entire society. So this is the former longtime director of the National Institute of Mental Health discarding the chemical imbalance theory of mental illness. Acceptance of the idea that a chemical imbalance causes depression transformed the public's comfort level about taking antidepressants. With a belief that a chemical imbalance caused their depression, accompanied by repeatedly hearing that Prozac, Soloft, and other selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, SSRI, antidepressants work to correct this imbalance, it seemed irresponsible not to take these antidepressants. So between 1988, when the first of the SSRIs, Prozac, hit the market, and 2008, this is a, a long span, right? Between 1988 and 2008, um, that's, that's a long time. The rate of antidepressant use in the United States increased nearly 400%. That's in 20 years, right? 400%. By 2013, 16.7% of American adults reported 
filling one or more prescriptions for psychiatric drugs. And a 2022, this is very recent, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC survey, reported 23.5% of American adults took prescription medication for mental health. Among children in the USA, this is based on psychology today, one in 12 children are on psychiatric drugs, including 1.2% of preschoolers and 12.9% of 12 to 17-year-olds. So here we go. If you knew that psychiatric drugs, similar to other psychotropic substances such as marijuana and alcohol, merely take the edge off rather than correct the chemical imbalance, would you be more hesitant about using them and more reluctant to give them to your children? This is Dr. Levine asking. Drug companies certainly believe you would be less inclined if you knew the truth, and that is why we were early on flooded with commercials about how antidepressants quote-unquote, work to correct this imbalance. So when exactly did psychiatry discard its chemical balance? Uh, sorry, when exactly did psychiatry discard its chemical imbalance theory? While researchers began jettisoning it by the 1990s, one of psychiatry's first loud rejections was in 2011, when psychiatrist Ronald Pies, editor-in-chief emeritus of the Psychiatric Times, stated, in truth, the chemical imbalance notion was always a kind of urban legend, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. Again, this is the editor-in-chief emeritus of the Psychiatric Times. This is 11 years ago. Pies is not the highest-ranking psychiatrist to acknowledge the invalidity of the chemical imbalance theory. Thomas Insel was the National Institute of Mental Health Director from 2002 to 2015. He was there for 13 years, right? The director of the National Institute of Mental Health. In his recently published book, Healing Notes, the idea of mental illness as a chemical imbalance has now given way to mental illnesses as connectional or brain circuit disorders. Now, while this latest brain circuit disorder theory remains controversial, it is now consensus at the highest levels of psychiatry that the chemical imbalance theory is invalid. The jettisoning of the chemical imbalance theory should have been uncontroversial 25 years ago when it became clear to research scientists that it was a disproved hypothesis. In blaming the brain, this is in 1998, Elliot Valenstein, professor emeritus of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Michigan, a guy that knows his stuff in a high position, detailed research showing that it is just as likely for people with normal serotonin levels to feel depressed as it is for people with abnormal serotonin levels, and that it is just as likely for people with abnormally high serotonin levels to feel depressed as it is for people with abnormally low serotonin levels. Valenstein concluded... Furthermore, there is no convincing evidence that depressed people have a serotonin or norepinephrine, I can never pronounce this, norepinephrine deficiency, right, the two chemicals. Again, he concluded that furthermore, there's no convincing evidence that depressed people have a deficiency in those supposed chemicals in the brain. But wait, how many Americans heard about this, right? About this study, about this, this uh, professor emeritus of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Michigan, having done detailed research, coming to this conclusion. 
Who has heard about this? I hadn't. In a 2007 survey, 84.7% of 262 undergraduates believed it likely that chemical imbalances caused depression. While I cannot locate a more recent survey, my experience with patients, the media, and even many doctors is that the majority of them continue to believe in the chemical imbalance theory of depression. Somewhat, oh, that word, analogously, oh man, the foreigner comes out in me sometimes. A 2015 survey reported that 42% of all Americans and 51% of Republicans, interesting, continue to believe that WMDs were found in Iraq. Once attached to a belief, it is difficult for many people to let go of it. Carl Sagan, a fierce advocate of skeptical inquiry, observed, one of the saddest lessons of history is this. If we've been bamboozled long enough, we tend to reject any evidence of the bamboozle. We're no longer interested in finding out the truth. The bamboozle has captured us. It's simply too painful to acknowledge, even to ourselves, that we've been taken. Ronald Pies claimed in the Psychiatric Times in 2014 that the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, the Guild of American Psychiatrists, fulfilled its obligation to inform the general public with a 2000 public statement that begins, the exact causes of mental disorders are unknown, but an explosive growth of research has brought us closer to the answers. Pies did acknowledge that psychiatry should have been clearer and louder. Shouldn't psychiatrists in positions of influence have made greater efforts to knock down the chemical imbalance hypothesis and to present a more sophisticated understanding of mental illness to the general public? Probably so. Don't feel like you were not paying attention if you did not know that psychiatry has long discarded the chemical imbalance theory of mental illness. It was news to national public radio correspondent Alex Spiegel, and she is the granddaughter of psychiatrist John Spiegel, a former president of the APA. In her 2012 NPR story, Spiegel recounts how, as a depressed teenager, she and her parents were told the following by a John Hopkins Hospital psychiatrist about her depression. It's biological, just like diabetes, but it's in your brain. This chemical in your brain called serotonin is too, too low. There's not enough of it, and that's what's causing the chemical imbalance. We need to give you medication to correct that. That's what they told her. Then, Spiegel tells us, the psychiatrist handed her mother a prescription for Prozac. As a journalist, Spiegel did some digging. She talked to jo Joseph Coyle, Harvard Medical School professor of neuroscience and editor of one of psychiatry's most pre prestigious journals, who told her, Chemical imbalance is sort of last century thinking. It's really an outmoded way of thinking. Spiegel tried to discover why psychiatry has not made greater efforts at publicizing its jettisoning of the chemical imbalance hypothesis. Alan Fraser, chair of the Department of Pharmacology at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, told her that framing depression as a chemical imbalance has allowed patients to feel better about taking a drug and to feel better about themselves if there was this biological reason for them being depressed, some deficiency, and the drug was correcting it. Apparently, authorities at the highest levels have long known that the chemical imbalance theory was a disproven hypothesis, but they have viewed it as a useful, noble lie to encourage medication use.
If you took SSRI antidepressants believing that these drugs helped correct the chemical imbalance, how does it feel to learn that this theory has long been disproven? Will this affect your trust of current and future claims by psychiatry? Were you prescribed an antidepressant not from a psychiatrist but from your primary care physician? And will this make you anxious about trusting all healthcare authorities? Trust is important in all of healthcare, but it is absolutely vital in helping someone with depression. In my three decades plus as a practicing clinical psychologist, this is Bruce Lipton speaking, I'm sorry, Bruce Levine speaking, my experience is that depression is a reaction to loss and other pains, and a loss of trust is one of those pains. Thus, discovering that one has misplaced trust in a doctor can make one's depression worse. <laughs> Primum non nocere, I think he says, first do no harm, should be common sense for any healthcare professional, but perhaps a regular reminder is necessary. Again, this is an article by practicing clinical psychologist, writer, speaker Bruce E. Levine, titled, Do You Still Believe in the Chemical Imbalance Theory of Mental Illness? I wanted to read this article because I had to read it several times because I'm about to interview one of the biggest proponents of this so-called theory, proponent of medication, proponent of ADHD being a disorder, Dr. Stephen Faraone. I can never say his name right. Faraone. Faraone. And in preparation for such a powerful interview, this article uh, was sent to me by one of our consultants on our project. And it just again shows how we are being sold these narratives. And I know that often uh, healthcare providers, scientists, writers, and so forth, they use metaphors, right? They use these, these kind of um, – there's another word for it. I can't think of it right now. But they use sort of this these visual things. Like I hear often uh, psychologists and so-called experts on ADHD say, well, it's like, it's like diabetes but in your brain. Now, that is not what ADHD behaviors actually – that's not where they stem from. That's not what it is. Truly not what ADHD is. It's not diabetes of the brain. That is just – I get why they're making such comparisons and using such metaphors or, you know, visual examples, but it actually causes more damage to people because we're all psychological human beings. We take in information, we interpret it based on filters that we've created, right, in our past, based on our experiences, based on our upbringing, our conditioning, conditioning being brainwashing, or I even call it brain dirtying, because brainwashing is good, because if you wash something, it's clean. I'd rather have a clean brain, right? But all of these factors, we have to consider that when we give people these examples, another one is uh, Dr. Hallowell, one of the top experts as well on the pro-medication, pro-disorder side, um, often says, oh, you know, having a Ferrari brain is like, you know, uh, it's like, it's like having a, sorry, having an ADHD brain is like having a Ferrari with bicycle brakes. Look, I get why the poor man is making this, this sort of visual, this metaphor, but it is completely ridiculous to blanket everyone with ADHD behaviors to say, oh, your brain's too fast and you have bicycle brakes. While on the surface, it makes sense if one is to really dig in, and trust me, I've been doing this for seven years, dig into 
all the theories, all the studies, uh, not all, I haven't read every study, but the main ones that float to the surface, right? The most popular ones that are being thrown around by experts on both sides, uh, especially referring to the consensus uh, on ADHD, which was written by um, Russell Barkley, one of the top dogs on the pro-medication, pro-disorder uh, side. And when you read what the arguments are for basically these experts saying the the results are in, the debate is over, and then citing studies that can easily be uh, not disproven, but can easily be analyzed and see how they were cherry-picked, how not the entire truth has been told, then one has to question everything around ADHD. Everything. And I mean, from the label, from the word, you know, the four letters ADHD, what does it stand for, right? What is it an abbreviation of? What kind of words? Are those empowering words? Or are they disempowering words? Is disorder an empowering word or is it disempowering? And when we start breaking it all down, what I found is that 80% of labels or terms or you know terminology, if you will, around mental disorders, in my case, because I've researched ADHD extensively, 80% of the words we use are disempowering, meaning negative, creating some kind of dependency, creating some kind of thinking of I'm broken, I'm not good enough, my brain is defect, uh, I have this for life, you name it, right? And so at least... I don't care what side you stand on. When I say I don't care, I mean like you can sit, you can stand on the pro disorder, pro disorder, pro medication side. Great if it floats your boat. If you're happy and healthy and you're thriving in life, that's your path. No judgment, right? I'm on the other side though. With our movement, we are on the uh, medication as a last resort, as a band aid, not as a long term solution. And digging deeper to really get to the true causes around ADHD. If you're interested, what we've discovered in seven years of research, interviewing some of the most powerful people out there, including Dr. Gabor Mate, Dr. Bruce Lipton, to name a few, go to our website, ADHDsover.com. We've just released a PDF that you can download for free, and that is called the um, ADHD Diagnosis Survival Guide for Conscious Parents. I believe it's about 30 pages, super easy to read. And there you can see pretty much what ADHD is, you know, what we're told it is versus what we've, what we've found out and what we're starting to see through the help of these amazing experts. Another one is uh, Stephen Porges, who is the inventor of the polyvagal theory, who talks about ADHD behaviors, not ADHD itself. Since that does not exist, we made it up. It's four letters. Four words, we needed to name a group of symptoms. All symptoms really are our behaviors because we can observe behaviors. You can't observe a symptom, right? So he says, Dr. Stephen Porges says, that what ADHD behaviors, where they come from, is from a nervous system locked in defense mode constantly. A nervous system that cannot calm down, that cannot go back to its natural state. Sure, we always have threats in our daily lives, like loud noises, like somebody attacking us, right? There's threats and our nervous system goes into defense mode. That's part of our operating system, our human operating system. But when it's locked in defense mode, a person is more likely to constantly be hypervigilant, 
right? Hyperactive, constantly scanning the environment, not really being able to be present with people. And by the way, here's the kicker, folks. There is a 90, some 90 plus percent overlap. And this is by uh, Stephen Levine. I hope, oh no, sorry, Peter Levine, who is, is a, a, one of the biggest authorities, top experts around trauma. He stated in an interview that we did with him that 90 plus percent, there's an overlap between the symptoms of trauma and ADHD. Let me say that one more time. There's a 90 plus percent overlap of the symptoms between trauma and ADHD. Now, if that's not reason enough to dig in deeper and further research into childhood trauma to see how that potentially is the major, I'm not saying the only, the major factor in having a young person's nervous system get locked in a defense mode, then showing behaviors that we label as symptoms that we then label as ADHD, in other cases, anxiety, uh, um, you know, uh, depression, uh, defiance disorder, and so forth, right? If that's not enough proof, if 90 plus percent overlap the symptoms of trauma and ADHD is not enough for research, for the medical professionals, for, for our psychiatry and psychology uh, um, organizations to dig deeper and say, hold on, let's look there first. Now, here's the funny thing. Here's the funny thing. In the 1990s, the um, CDC did a, a study with uh, Kaiser Permanente. It's the famous ACE study, A-C-E, stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And they discovered that children with uh, trauma, with more than one or two traumas uh, in their childhood, they call them adverse childhood experiences, such as divorce, uh, alcoholic parents, drug abuse, physical abuse, sex abuse. Children with one or more ACEs were more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD later on. This is in the 90s. There was clear evidence, and this is the CDC. I'm not a huge fan of the CDC, but this is a governmentally run organization together with Kaiser Permanente did a research study, and that was the conclusion. And you can look this up. You can go to the CDC website or you just Google uh, uh, ACE study, A-C-E. Then furthermore, the current Surgeon General, I believe she's still the current Surgeon General um, of California, Nadine uh, Burke-Harris, I believe, yep. She gave a TED Talk around the ACE study. And when you listen to what she says, that when she was practicing and children would come in and they would be diagnosed with ADHD, what she found is that all of them, I mean, I don't think she says all of them, but a super high percentage had one or two more ACEs. Again, referring back to the 1990s study. But how many parents know this? How many parents have heard about the ACE study and actually consider the fact that maybe their child is so was you know their child's nervous system is sensitive and that something happened during the childhood that locked that nervous system in the defense mode and now the child even when there's safety feels unsafe ultimately comes down to feeling unsafe not physically not just a physical threat just not feeling safe in our skin not feeling safe in our environment not feeling safe at home and so forth right that's what it comes down to now one more 
there was a study in, uh, I believe it's also late 80s or early 90s. Um, and this was Nadine Lambert out of Berkeley was a uh, scientist who studied, I think it was 350 children. And she followed these uh, children diagnosed with ADHD. This was half-half. So half of them were diagnosed with ADHD and they said to have you know ADHD. The other half did not. She um, basically uh, gave them Ritalin, right? Or I should say they were on Ritalin. So she wanted to do a study on the effects of Ritalin into adulthood. So she followed these children for 30 years. This is a 30-year study on the effects of Ritalin going from childhood to adulthood with the children that were uh, diagnosed with ADHD, right? Now, uh, sorry, uh, let, me, let me correct so this is half of the kids uh, were on Ritalin, they had ADHD. The other half were not on Ritalin, but also had ADHD, right? So she wanted to compare. And what she found after 30 years, imagine doing a 30-year study. That's a long study. She found that the majority of, of the, the kids that were on Ritalin in adulthood were more likely to smoke, get into drugs, and end up in jail or prison. These are the kids on Ritalin, not the kids not on Ritalin. Because what happens often, and this was the case with our son, when our son, when we had him diagnosed because the school said that he might have ADHD, that's what started our research journey. Um, they told us, and many parents that I've talked to have heard this from, from a psychologist or you know someone that sort of pre-diagnosed their child. They said, if you're not going to medicate your child, by the way, they're more likely to end up doing drugs, and end up in jail. When in fact, a 30-year study clearly proved the opposite. Now, we got to consider these things. Parents don't know about these things. That's why I do what I do. That's why I have these things uh, on our podcast, in our film, on our website. Because if parents are not aware of this, all they're fed is it's a chemical imbalance or something wrong with your child's brain. If you don't medicate them, they're going to end up living a horrible life. So Parents are busy. The pills are quick. Let's go. That's what happens to 75% of, of parents who walk into a psych, psychiatrist or psychologist's office, right? They walk out with pills for their child. Again, if that floats someone's boat, it makes the family happier. As a Band-Aid, for now, cool. When we turn to medication as a long-term solution, as a like most psychologists would like to say, you're going to have to take this for life. I've talked to dozens of adults who've taken it for 20, 30 years, who are now off of it and who are struggling psychologically, not because they're off of the medication, because the medication messed with them and they feel dependent. They feel like they've been sold a lie, right? And so, again, it, this is all about being informed, Right. I have no problem talking to anybody who's truly informed, but on both sides, because I've talked to people before on wisdom and uh, through my podcast, and they just come in strong with like, it's a chemical imbalance and that's proven and that's scientifically proven. You can look it up. And I go, okay, cool. But let me show you scientific proof that it's been disproven. It's been debunked as well a long time ago. And they go, no, 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 no that's not true. That's not true. What, what publication is it? And I go, well, it's the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health. Or it's this book or it's this study, right? It's the uh, – I was just reading about this. It's uh, the editor-in-chief emeritus of the Psychiatric Times. 
or uh, Elliot Wallenstein, who, who wrote a book called Blaming the Brain. He was the professor emeritus of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Michigan, right? These are not like some guy uh, claiming that something is not true. These are people who've studied this stuff for years. And so if we don't look on both sides, we're not fully informed. If we just go with the, the mainstream narrative, and I kind of hate the word because I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but we have to become a little bit of theorists and a little bit of, I love, somebody said recently, uh, conspiracy theories should be called spoiler alerts. Now, I'm aware that not all conspiracy theories uh, end up becoming true, but boy, oh boy, have a lot of them become true recently during COVID times, I can tell you that. And I've made up my mind quickly researching on both sides because I've done that with ADHD. And so it is not productive for me to have conversations with people who are so closed off to the alternative side, who believe that medication is the only real way to correct ADHD and who believe that ADHD is a disorder of the brain, right? I always say ADHD is made up. It does not exist. And people get, they lose their shit. And I always follow this up by, look, I'm not saying that there's not a struggle present, a behaviors that we can observe that we might not deem as normal. I get that. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. I'm saying ADHD does not exist because we've actually created it. So yes, it exists in language, but there isn't a thing called ADHD that exists in your brain, never has been, never will be, can never prove it. Even brain scans, and I don't wanna go into that right now, I did a whole episode on that before, has been debunked because they've actually scanned the brains of several people that did not have ADHD and compared them. And depending on the activity, depending on their mood, depending on the energy they had in their body, what they ate and so forth, right? Everything in their environment, they found that even people that didn't have ADHD, that their brain scans also showed a difference, right? Before and after. And so they were trying to say, oh, here, we can prove if you have ADHD, we can scan your brain. And there it is. That's been debunked. But nobody talks about that. I, I get a lot of heat, almost what I call the conspiracy theory heat, where people go like, you don't know what you're talking about. That's not true. But when you do enough research, when you dig deeper than the surface, then you will see that most of the disorders that we're talking about here, most of these mental illnesses are all a result of the environment a person is in, meaning what they listen to, how they were raised, what they believe in, where they were raised, right? All of these factors like create what I call this, this un instability of the mind, and then, for example, if we talk about depression, one of the things I found is that most people that I've talked to, friends and, and family members that, that supposedly have depression, what I've come to realize is that they're all suppressed. They're repressed. They're not fully self-expressed. They're not doing what they love in life. They don't speak the truth. They don't state their needs. They don't set boundaries. And they're dependent on outside sources to tell them what to do. Those are common patterns that I've found. And, and look, there's many mental illnesses. Like most of my mentors say, 
you know, there's a small percentage of mental illnesses where somebody really needs help. Somebody, you have to give them medication or they can't function in this world. Yes, but that's a small percentage. The majority of people rushing to take medication for depression or anxiety or ADHD or, you know, the majority of, of them are unwilling to look at every single area of their life, flip them all upside down, bring integrity to all of it, clean it up, clean up your own house before taking medication. Rarely do people do that. And the excuse is, I don't have time. I don't have money, resources. I can't, I can't, I can't. But I've seen people do it. And I've seen people dissolve ADHD. We did that with our son without medication over seven years. I've seen people dissolve depression, dissolve anxiety, dissolve uh, 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 even OCD, dissolve uh, oppositional defiant disorder, because all of it, they're all labels describing behavior. And what people did is they changed their environment that changed their behavior. And no longer did they have those behaviors that we would classify as a disorder with symptoms. It's all in language, folks. It's all in language. And we cannot discard that. We cannot simply say, that's not true. ADHD is real. I get where someone is coming from when they say that, but what they actually mean is I, or someone I know, struggles with these behaviors out in the world and they're having a hard time focusing and getting shit done and living a good life. Yes, I would agree. That is true. But that's different than saying ADHD is real and I have it because you cannot have it. It's not a thing to have. There are behaviors to exude, right? And those behaviors can be influenced and changed through changing our environment. And with that, and you can listen to our episode with Bruce Lipton on ADHD is over on our podcast, who says ADHD, and you can fill in other mental disorders, ADHD is not a hardware issue, meaning the brain. It's a programming issue, meaning what the environment, what comes in from the environment into the brain. So therefore, and epigenetics has proven this, the, the field of epigenetics has proven that, that the environment is responsible to turn on or off a gene. So we're never stuck. We're never predetermined to get a disorder that a family member had genetically. We are predisposed at best, but science has proven that no one is predetermined to get a disorder from a relative because of genes. That also has been debunked. And most people don't even know what epigenetics is. I didn't know. Most people have never done research on epigenetics. But when you get deeper in there, you realize that we have a system in place of diagnosing people with mental illnesses and prescribing drugs that is so hard to dismantle. And not even dismantle, it's hard to change and upgrade because look, I don't want to do away with the whole system. The system, the idea of a system was fine. It's great. I'm okay with that. But it's antiquated. It's now dishonest. It's absolutely capitalistic in nature. And if we can at least remedy some of that, we can actually help people. We can actually, instead of always talking about mental health, I don't like this term. I call it mental wealth. Because mental health is like going from zero, minus one to zero. 
Mental wealth is to go from zero to plus one, just to make an example. Mental wealth is what you and I want. Mental health is like trying to remedy something that's wrong with us. And it just sounds to me so outdated. And we need to shift our perspective around this. And hopefully you can join me on our podcast, listen to some of our guests, ADHD is over. I got to run. I got to take off today. I know it was a blah, blah, blah day. And I wasn't, I don't have time for conversation because I have a, a dinner meeting with a dear friend. But if you've been listening or coming through, I appreciate your attention. Your attention is your most valuable commodity. And you've given this to me generously. Uh, so thank you for that. And I just want to encourage you to do the research, to dig deeper than the mainstream narrative or the first three pages of Google. Dig deeper. Look around for sources that maybe at first talk or describe things that are counter to your belief. But trust me, that belief is there because it's been coming from one side, like mono. And once you research stereo and you're open to the opposition's point of view, and I've done this in politics too, once you're open to the opposition point of view, then you can choose powerfully what side you're on. Before that, you're just on one side that's been spoon-fed to you, right? You've been conditioned to be on that side and it all makes sense. But here's the perfect red flag to note. If you're not fulfilled in life, if you're often annoyed and even like triggered and angry about the opposition, and it's not a passionate kind of thing, the one I'm using for my project, but if it's annoyed and you're not fulfilled in life, that's a red flag. That means you're running around with a belief system that is not really aligned with your true being, your true self, with your truth. So I would invite you there to listen to the opposition's point of view and see where you land. Anyway, love you all. Create magic. Be well. And until soon. Cheers. Cheers.